beginning in just a few moments at Luke 18, beginning at verse 31. You know, Harry S. Truman was born in Lamar, Missouri on May 8, 1884. Harry S. Truman was known as the president with no middle name. The S stood for nothing. In fact, his parents just gave him the letter S to try to appease both grandparents, both grandfathers whose names began with S. And I guess they were political when he was born. They didn't want to displease one or the other. And so they just gave that common initial. It represented nothing. I thought about, you know, as I was studying his life, you know, the city of Lamar, where he was born, we might put quotations around it because the city, even today, the population is only 4,500 people, not the likely origin for a president from the United States. Harry S. Truman himself was not a likely candidate. He was not born into a family of politicians. His father was a farmer and dealt in livestock. In fact, as a young man, Truman worked with his father on the family farm. An Ivy League graduate, Harry S. Truman was not. In fact, he enrolled in Spalding's Commercial College of Business School in Kansas City, from which he left after one year due to financial hardship. He never completed college having the distinction of being the only president in the 20th century to not possess a college degree. To make matters even more challenging for his future, shortly after leaving college, Truman became part owner of a clothing company that suffered as a result of the Great Depression. They had to close the doors uh, because of financial hardship. In fact, at that time, if you looked at Harry S. Truman's life, you would think he was probably heading nowhere. Little could anyone have imagined that he would become the 33rd president of the United States and make what is most certainly the most critical and pivotal decision in the entire 20th century. Truman was known as the people's president. That is, he tried to stay in with the common people. Uh, he retired solely on his military pension, which was $120 a month, equated to about maybe $1,500 in today's currency. He did not receive a pension for being in Senate or, or for being a president of the United States. And so he lived as many other people lived. In fact, they said when he went back to Missouri uh, after his presidency, you could often see him walking the streets, eating in the cafe or going to the library that was named after him. You know, we're intrigued by individuals who have become famous, specifically our leaders. And what we really love is to see stories like this, a rags to riches type of story. But as I was reading about Harry Truman's life this past week, I began to compare him to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Like Harry Truman, our Lord Jesus had a very humble beginning. Uh, like Harry Truman, he did not possess a dictatorial, Jesus did not possess a dictatorial type of attitude. He had a, a servant's heart. But unlike Truman, and this is a clear distinction, whereas Truman's life began humbly and, and through the providence of God, he rose to a high position. 
We're going to see at least in his first coming that Jesus, who had a humble beginning, had a destination which would be the rejection of man. He would not die a glorious death in man's eyes. And so as we begin this series of messages, I, I titled this series, and this series will lead us all the way up to the Sunday uh, before Easter, Palm Sunday, the path to Calvary. And Jesus was very clear, there was no mistake uh, that he was headed toward Calvary. He wasn't the only one who knew it. The devil tried to distract him. Remember after his baptism, remember the three temptations? The devil was trying to give him a bypass, it might say, to glorification, but Jesus did not take the bait. He was not distracted. There were times when Jesus would tell individuals, my time is not yet come, and he clearly knew that his destination was crucifixion. And so as we look today with that in mind, I want to look at Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31. It says there that Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, insulted, spit upon, and after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the sayings was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. But as he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front told him to keep quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he came closer, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has saved you. Instantly he could see and began to follow him, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this journey toward Resurrection Day Sunday, Lord, as we look at the narrative events of Jesus' life in these last days, as we look at his teachings through parables, through addressing both those who were followers and those who rejected him. I pray that this journey that we're beginning today, that, that through it, Lord, we would gain a greater understanding for your heart. And I lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the context for these words that uh, we just looked at uh, were this. It was part of Jesus' later Perean ministry. And in, in all likelihood, uh, the words that were spoken here were in about the last three months of Jesus' three-year public ministry. And as we saw, he's telling the disciples here that they were to go up to Jerusalem. Well, he began to make his way from north, from like the Sea of Galilee area. He traveled in through Perea, which was what's called the Transjordan area, that is the, the land that was east of the Jordan, and then crossed 
crossing over the Jordan, he made his way to Jericho. And so we see that uh, as he was making his way to Jericho, the blind man uh, was sitting there. So Jesus at this point has not reached Jerusalem. He's sort of finishing out that part of his ministry in the area of Perea and then just moving toward Jericho. Um, I appreciate the contribution of uh, A.T. Robertson in the Harmony of the Gospels, and I would encourage if you uh, would love to do deeper study into the Gospels, that's a great resource. It's A.T. Robertson's book, A Harmony of the Gospels, and what he does is he takes the Gospels and puts them in narrative form. He takes the four Gospels chronologically and helps you understand contextually where things were happening. As I was studying Robertson's uh, Harmony of the Gospels this past week, it was interesting to me that while Luke didn't include it, where he placed chronologically, and I believe accurately, was this, that the disciples, or where this happened, the disciples right in and around that had been arguing over greatness. It's not recorded here in Luke, but you may remember James and John went to Jesus, wanted to sit at his right side and his left in glory, and the disciples became indignant with the two, not in a righteous way, but they were basically, what are you trying to do to get one up on us? And all of a sudden, there was this argument over who would be the greatest. And so it's in this setting that Jesus preaches these words. It's nearing the end of his public ministry. Amidst a group of disciples jockeying for position and thinking of visions of grandeur that Jesus predicts for the third time that he will be going to Jerusalem and that he was going to Jerusalem to die a humiliating death at the hands of both Jews and Gentiles, but then he would rise again. Over these next 12 or so Sundays, we're going to follow this chronological journey that Jesus prophesies here in Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at his teachings. We're going to look at some familiar actions like the cleansing of the temple. We're going to see those around him who were both for him and against him. But more than anything, we're going to understand through this study that Jesus had a single focus, and that was that he was going to die for our sins. In the midst of all that was happening around him, as we'll see today and in the weeks ahead, that the focus was on Calvary. Today we see two narratives, and they're sort of separated. We're going to look at both of them. First is his encounter with the disciples, his dialogue with them about uh, his imminent death. And then secondly, we see a blind man who receives his sight. In the first narrative, we see those who had been around Jesus for over two and a half years. In the other narrative, we see a man who had only heard about Jesus. But I want to look at each of these, and hopefully we can gain an appreciation for the heart of Christ as he's headed toward Calvary. But first, let's look at his dialogue with the disciples. We see that in verses 31 
through 34. As I just shared a moment ago, these disciples had been around Jesus. They had eaten with him. They had stayed in the same area with him. They followed his teaching closely. They observed his public ministry. They experienced personally his private ministry to them. And you would think among all people, they would know Jesus and his purpose better than anyone. But that's wrong. Because here we see that Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of that which was prophesied through the Old Testament prophets, that he was the one who would be handed over to the Gentiles, that he would die, that he would suffer ridicule, and that he would rise again. And the disciples could not understand that. There were really two things that Jesus was explaining to the disciples. The first was this where he and they were going. Notice what he says in verse 31. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. We're going up, he said, to Jerusalem. Now, Perea was east of Jerusalem, not north. And, and we see that Jericho was north of Jerusalem. And so as we look at at what Jesus is saying here. Up, he's not speaking about geographically, he's speaking topographically. In other words, even Jericho was north, you would be traveling south, but topographically, you would be heading up into the mountains. It was a long journey uh, by foot uh, into uh, the holy city there. We've been studying about Jerusalem on Wednesday evenings, and Jerusalem is God's city. We need to understand that. And, and we've learned in our study on Wednesday evenings that when the kingdoms were divided, the northern kingdom tried to make Samaria its holy city. God said that's not acceptable. And so as we look in the Old Testament, Jerusalem is significant. As we look to the future and the prophecy, like in Zechariah 14 in the book of Revelation, Jerusalem is significant. And in Jesus' day, Jerusalem was significant. It would not be unusual for someone to say, let us go to Jerusalem. In fact, annually, pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem to offer the sacrifices, specifically at the Passover, which was right near this time. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 121. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. You may be familiar with that. That psalm was a song, and it's known as a song of ascents. That is, a song of ascending. And so as pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem for the Passover annually, they would sing these songs. It would be much like Christmas hymns would be to December 25th for us. And so uh, people would be very familiar with going to Jerusalem. But Jesus realized that this trip to Jerusalem wasn't just any trip. He says, for the Son of Man is not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he would give his life just outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And that answers the second thing. Where they were going was Jerusalem. But he also addresses the issue of why they were going. It was clear here that in going to Jerusalem, it was not going to be a joyful thing. 
a celebratory thing. It was going to be difficult. He would be mocked, he said, and ridiculed, that he would be beaten. He, he would receive uh, the 39 lashes at the hands of the Jews. And, and really, when the, the flogging was this, they would take uh, not a whip, but they would take a rod and they would place bones on it, fragmented bones, and they would beat the back of an individual. And so we know that that was part of Jewish law. It would be 39 times because law said 40 times. And so you could not go beyond 40 times. So the law-abiding Jews would say, let's do one short so we don't mess up and get and have problems with God. And so Jesus is saying here, we're going there. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles alike will be set against me. And it's very important that we know this. He was going to Jerusalem not to observe the Passover, <coughs> but to be the Passover lamb. And the disciples didn't understand it. It said in verse 34, they didn't grasp, they didn't understand what he said. It was hidden from them. Why was it hidden from them? They were sinful individuals who had preconceived notions of the Messiah. They heard the stories of Judas Maccabeus. They heard of the great Jewish uprising from uh, over a hundred and some years earlier. And they thought Jesus is coming to deliver us from the Romans. And, and we will again become a great nation under his rule. But they misunderstood two, misunderstood two things. They must have understood first who the enemy was. The enemy was not Rome. The enemy was sin and death. They also misunderstood how Jesus would gain that victory, not through military force in human ways, but by dying and rising again. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Hebrews chapter 13, and you may remember in verse 12, where we were challenged to go outside the gate as Jesus was. And we, we talked about how when Jesus went outside the gate, he was basically ostracized by men. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews is saying that we need to be willing to take on ostracism ourselves for the sake of being followers of Christ. And we're not to follow the world, but we're to follow Christ. This past week, I was reading in Leviticus chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was that time once a year when the high priest would go into the holiest of holies and offer the sacrifice first for himself and then for the people. The sacrifice, the, 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 the bodies of those animals, they would, they would be killed and, and the blood would be left in and around the temple area but the body would be taken outside of the city and considered as refuse. They, they had to get rid of it. When Jesus died, he died outside of the city of Jerusalem at Calvary. And so he understands here all of this Old Testament teaching, and he realized that his body would be disregarded by man, that he would suffer at the hands of man. The disciples didn't understand it, but we know that they will later. But the question is today, do you understand it? Have you come to the time in your life where you realize, Jesus, you died for me? You came specifically for that purpose, not just to give moral teachings, not just to give an example, but you came to die outside of the gates of Jerusalem 
so that I might live. Maybe today you've never trusted Christ. You need to do so this day. But I want you to see, secondly, Jesus' interaction with the blind man. We see that in verses 35 through 43. One of the things that excites me is um, we're going to see a variety of material in the next few weeks. Uh, There are going to be parables that we'll look at. There's going to be clear teaching of Jesus. There are going to be narratives and various things in this journey. We're going to see Jesus' heart for people. We're going to see his passion for God's house and for the will of the Father. We're going to observe his wisdom in his teachings And at each of these weeks, there's going to sort of be a stop. Jesus is headed toward Calvary, but there's a stop. And it might be that he stops to teach the disciples. It might be that he stops to minister to a man like this man who was blind. It might be that he stopped to confront the religious leaders. And so as Jesus is making this journey, we see this first stop to which will look. And in this encounter with the blind man, we see Jesus' heart of mercy toward one man in need. The crowd was around Jesus as he was entering toward Jericho, and this man was a nuisance to the crowd. He cried out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Something that I read that I really didn't pick up until this morning is the crowd were in the front. It said those in the front were yelling back at him. I thought about how self-centered that crowd was. Instead of allowing this man who could have received help from Jesus to be toward the front, they were pushing toward the front. And so the people, verse 39, says the ones in the front tried to quiet him. In other words, you're interrupting my experience. But what about Jesus? This man was not an interruption. He stopped. Now again, Jesus is headed toward Calvary. His sight has been set there. We know from the baptism forward that his sight was set solely on Calvary. Yet he stopped. Why did he stop? Because that's why he came. He stopped if just for a short time. This stopping was not contrary to his purpose, but consistent with it. It was not an aberration. It was the norm. His love for one man led him to stop. And if we think about Christ heading toward Calvary, You have heard this saying many times, and I believe it's true. If you were the only person alive, Jesus would die for you. And that helps us to personalize that, and it's so true. And and the reason we know that is because of events like this. In the midst to Calvary, he did not consider this man a distraction, but he stopped. And he stopped to serve this man, this one man. Sometimes I'll confess, in my busy world, I don't stop to serve like I should. I can be so busy doing what I'm doing, whether it be ministering to the masses or whether it be getting tasks done that have to get done, that I don't stop enough for one person. And again, this is not an aberration for Jesus. We want 
look at this next week, but we see in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, that dreaded man Zacchaeus that everyone despised. What did Jesus do? He stopped and he said, I must go to your house today. I wonder today who might be your one person. Whom has God placed on your heart, even as I'm speaking now? It may be an individual who's going through an illness. It may be an individual who's going through uh, a separation or divorce or work situation. It may be an individual that you know has not trusted Christ and may not have uh, much time left. Who is that one person and what are you going to do about it this week? Is your heart even receptive to consider it? You know, sometimes in the midst of the big things that we're doing, we need to simplify. Sometimes interruptions are not interruptions, but divine appointments. Before we move from Jesus' attitude and action toward uh, this uh, blind man, though, I want to note two things as we move forward. The first is this. Notice what uh, Jesus said in verse 42, receive your sight, your faith. He didn't say has healed you, but it's a specific Greek word, sozo, that means your faith has saved you. In other words, something greater than meets the eye or even the physical sight uh, being restored was happening here. I believe that man was saved. That, that not only was God healing his body, but even more importantly, Jesus was healing this man's soul. That this man had biblical faith, and as a result of that, he was saved. But the second thing that's so important, and we'll learn this as we go through this journey. He stopped here, but he didn't stay. There, there was a great work there. I'm sure people were amazed by it. The man was running, glorifying, pointing to Christ. But Christ stopped. But it was just for a time. Why? Because he was headed toward Calvary. Well, we look at Jesus, but what, real quickly, about this man. What was it that, in his appeal to Jesus, well, verse 41, it was a simple issue. He said, I want to see. Four words that meant so much to him. It's very interesting. The disciples could physically see, but they couldn't understand spiritually. This man could not physically see, but he understood things spiritually. He said, I need help. I need help. But not only that, the, the disciples had been around Jesus for a number of years, but still couldn't grasp their minds around it. Yet this man had merely heard of Jesus, but upon experience him, noticed something different. What do we learn for that? Well, I'm thankful we can be like the disciples. Our familiarity with Jesus sometimes can cloud our spiritual eyes to see what he can truly do. But by the mercy and the grace of God, he doesn't give up on us. But also, if this were the first time you heard the gospel, you could respond like this man. You don't have to have... Um, a theological degree, pass a quiz on the Bible. He's just calling you today to believe on him. The man did that. And that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is profound, yet simple. You know, Charles Swindoll, the humorous and excellent pastor, um, school leader, 
theologian, writer, still alive at the age of 87, shared in a book I read about a sign that rests in his office. And this sign read this way on one side. Idiosyncratically eccentric phraseology is the promulgator of terrible obfuscation. On the other side of the sign is the translation. Big words cause confusion. Aren't you glad the gospel of Jesus Christ is simple enough that a man who merely had heard of him said, Lord, help me, and through biblical faith could be saved? I wonder today, have you come to this place in your life where you say, Lord, I can't save myself. I repent and turn to you. Give me the eternal life. Save me, Lord, even as you saved this man. On his way to Calvary, Jesus wasn't too busy. This week, will you be too busy for him? I guarantee you what will happen in my life when I preach this, I'm going to be headed towards somewhere or doing something or working on a message or doing something, and there'll be a knock or a tug. Will I stop just as Jesus did and consider that one person? But as Jesus stopped, as an example to us, let's not forget this. He didn't stay there. He stopped because the greater accomplishment, the greater work that he had was to die for our sins and rise again. Let's pray. Father, as we look at uh, this account, Lord, in the Gospel of Luke, um, we thank you, Lord, first, that you're patient with us so many times especially those of us who have known you for a number of years, we can, through our preconceived notions, miss what you're doing, excluding things or including things that really are not of you, making wrong judgments, not understanding. But Lord, in the same way, we thank you that this gospel that you have given to us, as profound as it is, is simple enough that a man who could not physically see could ask, and you would do a great work. Lord, as we go through this journey, help us to understand how central Calvary was to your ministry, that everything you did was a piece of the puzzle leading to the finished product of Calvary. And Father, as we do so, may we resolve to live our lives accordingly. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close.